there. This is episode 39 of The Game Pit. My name's Sean, and this is another one of our Picking Over the Bones episodes. In fact, it's our very first episode of 2015. Hey, it's Ronan here. In our Picking Over the Bones episodes, we do a review of four different games. Sean introduces two, and I'm going to introduce two. And the two games I've picked for us to review this time around are Quartermaster General and Makata. Sean, what would you like us to discuss? Aaron and I've chosen Istanbul and Tiny Epic Kingdoms. Fantastic. You can catch all our episodes on 2d6.org. You can get them alongside lots of other great gaming podcasts at the Network.com. And let's crack on with the games. Istanbul was Constantinople, now it's Istanbul. Now Constantinople, been a long time gone. Constantinople, now it's Turkish delight on a moonlit night. Every gal in Constantinople lives in Istanbul, in Constantinople, so if you can date in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in so, we're going to kick off with Istanbul, the 2014 release from Pegasus Spiel, amongst others, designed by Rudiger Dorn, and Rudiger did Louis Fourteenth, Las Vegas, Jambo, Goa, Arcadia, a whole slew of games there. Plays 2 to 5 in a time frame of about 40 to 60 minutes, shall we say. So what is Istanbul? It is an economic pick-up-and-deliver game with a modular board, and there's a little bit of dice rolling thrown in at times. Other news about Istanbul, this is the 2014 winner of the very prestigious Kennerspiel de Yaras, which is basically the award for games tailored for the more expert or seasoned gamer. So in Istanbul, you are a merchant, and you have four assistants, and you'll be rushing through the marketplace trying to fill your barrow with goods to sell for a profit, and ultimately, the coveted rubies. The first player to reach the required number of rubies will be declared the winner. Your merchant and assistants are represented by discs with a sticker on your merchant to distinguish it from the assistants, and they start the game stacked on top of each other with the merchant on top. The board is made up of 16 tiles, each depicting a location in the market in which your merchants can interact. And I'll talk about the board and the tiles a bit later on. On your turn, you must move one or two places orthogonally and attach one assistant from the stack at the tile that you land on. And you may do the action the tile allows. Should you already have an assistant there, from before you're going to pick them up and add them to the stack again while still being able to do the tile action. When you run out of assistance, you can't do any actions until you gather them up again. You can encounter the other merchants, i.e. the other players, and some other characters on your travels. Should you land on a space with another player merchant disc, you must pay them money before you can do the action. There are also the smuggler and the governor, and these offer the option of buying or trading. And finally, there is the option of sending a family member to do your bidding in the game. And should another merchant happen across your family member, they may have them arrested for a small reward. Now, as I said before, the only thing left to talk about, because it is a fairly simple game, is the actual tiles which give the players their choice of actions. So here's a really quick overview. You have the Wainwright, and this allows players to improve the capacity of their carts and barrows. Warehouses, these are where you gather your goods. You have the black market and the tea house. This is where you get to roll the dice and get goods and money. The markets, where you're going to go to sell your goods for money. The caravansary, this is where you acquire bonus cards. I haven't really talked about the bonus cards. These are little cards that are going to offer you one-off bonuses to make life a bit easier. 
the police station. This is where you send the aforementioned family member either out to do your bidding or the other players send them back there after arresting them. The mosques are going to allow you to acquire ongoing powers and bonuses. The Sultan's Palace and the Gemstone Dealer is where you're going to buy rubies for the monies or goods. And finally, the Fountain is kind of your home square and this allows you to gather all your assistants back. Ronan, Istanbul, what did you think of it? Well, when I was going through and doing my notes and getting together my thoughts and my plays of this, Sean... I found myself taking a particular stance because Istanbul has been really successful. It won the Kenneth Builders Yaris. It's ranked in the top 150 on Board Game Geek. And I found almost like I wanted the game to justify that high standing for me. I wanted it to... Why is it so popular? Why do I keep seeing it on geek lists of people's favourite game of the month and it's won awards and what have you? So I'm going to start playing a little bit of Devil's Advocate back towards you because I think you quite like this game and the first thing I'm going to ask you is what sort of a gamer is this game aimed at? You think I like it do you? Right I think despite the fact that it won the Kennespiel de Jars and as I explained earlier the Kennespiel is aimed towards the the more seasoned gamer I think this is a really really light game and I think it can be picked up by gateway gamers so Although there are elements in there, Roland, sort of the pick-up-and-deliver mechanism, and there are sort of various tactical, strategical, we talk about it often, maybe pushing it a little bit too far, but there's definitely a tactical element to it. I still think it's very much a gateway game. So, I thought you were going to say that, but I'll say to you that actually the design of it takes it away from being an actual gateway game. I don't think... The iconography is clear enough for it to be a gateway game. I think it's got too many gamer sort of ticks and crinkles in it for me to actually be happy getting Istanbul out with brand new gamers to make it an actual gateway game. You know, so the point I'm really I'm trying to get at and making you lead me on to is that I think it has got those sort of tactical elements to it. You do have to have a plan. You can't just play one turn at a time. There's very little randomness in the game, apart from maybe the odd draw of bonus cards. So it's got some gamely elements to it, which take it away from being a really good gateway game. Yet there's no depth there for actual gamers. What do you think in terms of depth? Is there enough there for us to get it out with, like you say, seasoned gamers and really crack on with, with a game of it? I... I'm right on the fence with this. It it really it's the question that I asked myself time and time again about this actual game is is there enough for me to actually say that is a good game for a seasoned gamer or even a sort of a midway between the two? I think there just is enough because of the various different things you can do. The modular board, it, it keeps it fresh, it, it moves around so you can't have the same game all the time. Also, the way that the assistants work is quite interesting. Now, that may get boring in time, but at the moment it's quite interesting. You you can't just go marching around the board. You've got to plan where you go and you have to gather those assistants back at some station you have to almost plan a route there's almost a route building aspect to it there's a lot going on none of it is particularly deep but there's a lot of things that come together to make this game it's not just your simple pick up and deliver game so do you think that the spatial movement aspect of the game actually adds anything is it any better from being that 
than it would be if it was just a straight worker placement. You choose your actions. Okay, if someone's gone to a particular action before you, maybe it costs you more money or it's less effective. Like a standard worker placement game, how much does what is a gaming mechanism that's becoming slightly more popular, this movement around the modular board, what does it add to this particular game? The point I was getting at, I think that just about tips the scales for me. That actual planning your movements, I think it, it makes it just a little bit more interesting than, than a bog standard worker placement. If this was just a simple worker placement, i.e. I'm going to put my worker in the market, I'm going to put my worker in one of the other on one of the other tiles, I think, yeah, I think that then this really, really does really get lost in the sea of like-minded, mediocre games of that ilk. But I think that moving around the modular board and having to make sure that you don't run out of workers and not everything is immediately accessible to you, that makes it a little bit more interesting and therefore I think more interesting to me as a more seasoned gamer. Okay, and I'm going to try and make this my last negative sort of angle I'm taking on this. Can you remember anything, anything specific about any of your individual games of this? Has anything about it really stood out to you and you've gone, oh, that was really clever play, or that happened and it was unexpected, or I can really remember that moment and it was funny in a game of Istanbul? Not really. Not yet, anyway. The, the things that I remember about Istanbul are more generals than specifics. The more I like, I like the modular board. I like the way that there are different things to do on this modular board. Like you can go and have a roll of a dice. You can go and play a bonus card. Uh, you can go and arrest somebody's family member. That they're the things that I remember. It's not really a specific moment where oh that worked really well or oh, that person made the really good move there. Nothing like that stood out for me. It was more more general things. So, yeah, it does, it kind of gives a good impression, I think. It's well made, the components are nice, the artwork's fine, the iconography I don't think is great, like I say, for gateway gamers, but it's perfectly clear once you've got a few games under your belt. So, are you just telling me it's something average wrapped up in a slightly novel mechanic and in some good packaging as in they've presented everything well? That isn't too far away from my summary, but... Let's not jump straight there. I want to come back to your, your iconography comment. I think, yeah, I agree with you in terms of the iconography isn't clear and it isn't immediately clear maybe what everything does. But I think it's a good game to teach people what different things do. Like that going and pick the pick up and deliver aspect to it, the route learning, the going to the dice and the gambling side of it, and and the bonus cards. They're all little things that you find in it other games. to hook people on gambling, is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> you never know. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in them rooms. Just the casino boss over there. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's lots of little bits in there that can be used to teach people about other games that they will find in other games they might not be the best versions of those aspects but i think they're all they are all there and it does come together to form a reasonably cohesive game i think yeah i would say it's more than reasonably cohesive i think they've pulled together fairly unoriginal aspects of different games and and thrown it and gone here you go he he's a euro but i, I say one of the other novel things, as well as that movement around the board, is 
Uh, novel maybe going too far, but the scoring, I like the aspect of it. I like there's a race to it. You're racing to the number of gems, and also many of those tiles, you're racing to get there first to be most effective, or you're racing to take an opportunity which has opened up, and you want to get there before someone else has got there. And it, that almost ties into that laying out and forming a chain with your pieces, in that you're racing to go somewhere, and you feel like you're progressing. Do you think that might be part of the appeal, the feeling of progression and racing each other all the time? Yeah, definitely. It is, a, it is a nice way of doing things. The race element is going to add some excitement, some tension to the game. But that brings me to one of the things I read before I even picked up my copy of Istanbul and played it for the first time. Were people talking about this, there's one or two ways and there's like a, a nailed on sort of way to win this game. And it irks me when people talk about the, these things because often I feel that they're just talking nonsense they've just found in their group that's something that works but in this one every game i've played of it there does seem to be one way that kind of sticks its nose above the crowd in terms of the best way to go the most economic way to go about winning the game the way the way that it's kind of stuck its nose above the crowd for me anyway is to go through the sultan and the sultan's palace the gemstone dealer you have to go to the market trade your goods get the money then buy the rubies but with the Sultan's Palace, you can forget all that, just go straight up by the rubies. And that seems to be the optimum way of getting the rubies as quick as possible. Now, I'm sure people have played a lot more than I have, and hopefully they've worked out different ways, and hopefully that that's down the road for me. But at the moment, that seems to be the optimum way of winning this game. I definitely think that's to be competition over the Sultan's Palace. When you're taking those rubies, the price increases every time someone takes one. You have to add one more good to what you're giving the Sultan in order to get these rubies back. And if people compete over them, then that drives that price up quicker. Then if you, I think if you allow someone backwards and forwards to the Sultan's Palace while you go off to another corner of the board, then that can be a problem. So even there where you have to compete over that one space, what it does is it takes away a bit from... The, the movement around the board because everyone has to go in fairly similar routes and directions because you have to come back to the fountain sometimes and you have to go to Sultan's Palace and it limits what should be the great flexibility of the game really so don't let one person for sure go to Sultan's Palace all the time compete over it but then that slightly takes away from the fun of and a little bit of freedom that you want from a game Brendan, how do you feel the interaction is in this game? Now I know there are interactive sort of almost mechanisms put into it with the family member and having to pay the other merchants but did you feel that the game was actually interactive in its in its core i felt like i was keeping an eye on what everyone else was doing again for sort of that race aspect to see if i was ahead or behind avoiding each other seemed better than being near each other to be honest so in terms of interaction there's some there you know you can get beaten to buy that extension to your barrow or to make that deal Sultan's Palace before the other person is. It's light, it's definitely Euro level, but it's not solitaire. So there's kind of, you brush against each other rather than crash into each other head on. Another question. This as one, as we've mentioned twice already, the Kinnaspil de Jaras. Ronan, it was up against some some pretty hefty competition. How do you think it stands up against the likes of Russian railroads, which I know you're a fan of, Concordia and Rococo? It doesn't. <laughs> I it, you'd say that. <laughs> it doesn't. It's not in the same league as those games in terms of both complexity and well, it has to be for my personal taste because I would like a slightly more complex game. 
I really like Russian Railroads. I really like Concordia. Played Rococo only a couple of times. I think there's more to explore there. It hasn't been my favourite game so far. I would put Istanbul fourth out of those four. And I'd really wonder, does it belong in that section? Does it belong in the section which Village won last year? Now, I'm not Village's biggest fan, but it is a lot deeper than Istanbul. And this just feels like an odd one out. I feel like they looked at it and went, oh, it's slightly too gamey for Spilders Yaros, but we like it. So therefore, we're going to chuck it in the Kenneth Spilders Yaros. And it doesn't really belong there. Does that mean we need a third category of complexity of games? Probably not. We're going to go like boxing and have 28 different weight categories. And no one will know which really is the game of the year. But it didn't belong in that competition, in my opinion. Certainly not in a field like that. Because... You're going to offer Russian Railroads off in Istanbul. Come on, there's absolutely no choice there. Because Russian Railroads is two hours of a full-on thinky game experience. This isn't trying to be that and isn't that. It is. It comes in at under an hour. It's much lighter. I, I don't know what it was doing swimming amongst those heavyweights. Yeah, I do agree with you. I think for those reasons, it's not specifically that I prefer the other games. Although... There is at least one, if not two, that I do prefer. But the fact that you just said it, it just it doesn't really sit nicely in in that in this category. It's for seasoned, experienced gamers, and uh, this one's right as we said right at the top of our review of it. Is this one sits right on the fence between is it a gateway game? Is it a more seasoned gamers game? I think it's quite, don't it's really one know. It's next step games really. I don't think I'd yeah. drag it out with brand new gamers. I don't think I'd drag it out with, you know, Puri and yourself in our gaming Sunday when we're here for eight hours. But in the middle there, someone who's played a couple of games, or even someone who turns up and says, you know, I want something a bit thinkier and a bit deeper, I might chuck Istanbul in front of them there, but it, it does sit in that middle section where people tend to pass through, you know? That's where I feel it is. But I, I'm going to ask you a question, actually, since we were talking about Kenneth Bildesiaris. What order would you have listed those four games in? No, I don't want to upset you by putting Russian Railroads last, so I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to pick whatever you like. I haven't had enough experience with Concordia. I think I would place Concordia above it. I would definitely place Rococo above it. And although I was a bit meh with Russian Railroads, I think I'd put Russian Railroads ahead of it. So I think, yeah, I think this one would probably be last. I'm not sure 100% about uh, Concordia, but I think it's probably fourth out of four. Uh, it's, it's, I'm not the biggest fan of Rococo, but it's definitely down there with that. And Concordia and Russia Railroads are way, way better games, in my opinion. Before we sum up, Ryan, just, uh, just a quick word about the rule book. It's a perfectly good rule book. It does everything. But it's, it's a quite a funny one, because one of the simplest rules is the assistance rule. <laughs> and it's a little bit ambiguous about that. It's just like, it doesn't tell you exactly what you need to do. So it's just really weird. It's a brilliant rule book that misses out the most simple rule. Yeah, but, and... the, the rule's quite counterintuitive, though, isn't it? Because if you go to a space where you haven't got an assistant, you've got to drop one off. So that costs you an assistant. But when you come back to a space and assistant in, you pick it up and you still get to do the action. So it almost seems like, you know, I, I should do one or the other because I'm used to things costing me assistance and now I'm getting one back and an action at the same time. It's, it was a little bit funny. And it, you're right, it wasn't explained very clearly in the rule book. Although, not probably the most difficult rule ever to work out. Yeah, that's why probably we struggled. <laughs> anyway, would you like to sum up for us, Roman? Yeah, I think that this review, as we've been discussing, has come across fairly negative. But do you know what? Istanbul is a nice game. It's a pleasant game. It's a forgettable game. 
But it's a game I'm happy to play. If someone cracks out and says a fancy game in Istanbul, you know, I'd smile. I'd be like, oh, yeah, cool, Istanbul, no problem. We've got an hour. Let's get that done. There's something to it. There are some decisions to be made. It's not the deepest. It's not going to stick with me forever. I don't need to own it. But if I were to play it half a dozen more times over the next couple of years, yeah, why not? Sure, it's one of those. Yeah, it's nice. To be honest, Ryan, it always irks me when I do it, but I've got to pretty much completely agree with you. It's a perfectly nice-looking game. It does lots of things that are mildly interesting. It's not a game that I would turn down unless I'd played loads of it. It's just one of those, and the best way to describe it, it's one of those, if you're having a clear-out at home and you, you happen across something, you think, you know what, I might need that. I don't know when I'll need it, but I might need it. So I'll keep it. So I'll put it on the shelf and I'll keep it in case I need it. That's that's what I feel about this game. I think I might want to play it at some stage. I don't want to play it now, but I might want to play it in a couple of months or six months. It's one of those. It's very much middle of the road. It's, it's in my collection. I do own it. I'm not going to get rid of it, but I'm not looking to play it every week. It's, it's a perfectly good game. Does some interesting things. Looks nice. Yeah, that's Istanbul. second game this time round. We are going to go back to 2010 and a release from famous designer Uwe Rosenberg who's done so many games, Caverna, Agricola, Aura et Labora, etc, etc. We mention him all the time. This, like I say, was from 2010. It's for two to four players. It takes 120 minutes and it's called Mercata. And it's definitely one of his lesser known and probably lesser discussed releases it came from Lookout Games, who have recently joined together with Mayfair Games, but they have brought out a lot of Uwe's big releases. So it did have kind of a big-name publisher behind it when it came out. Didn't make that big a splash. Let's have a look at it. Now, it's themed, and I use the theme very loosely here, but let's pretend it has a theme. It's themed around the rise of Hamburg after the Thirty Years' War in Europe, which was France versus the Habsburgs from Austria and Spain. And apparently the city-state of Hamburg did very well during this war, made lots of money, was able to create some trade networks during it and afterwards, and that is what we're recreating. And then from there, the thematic explanation becomes a bit difficult, so we'll just go pure mechanics. The game is played on a board which displays 12 different locations, 11 of them in Europe, and one is Newfoundland, and the players control one piece between them, and on each player's turn, they're going to take this one piece and they're going to put it somewhere on the board, okay? And when you travel to one of these 12 destinations, it's either going to cost you time or it's going to take time away. And time is one of the currencies within the game. It is as if that piece resets back to Hamburg every turn, if you imagine it like that. So if I choose to take it to England and then Sean on his next turn chooses to take it across to Sweden... He doesn't actually pay to travel from London to Sweden. It's as if he's back in Hamburg, and however close the destination he's going to is to Hamburg is how much he gains or he loses. So it's a bit of a funny thematic thing there already. Anyway, in these eight major destinations we have on the board, there are goods. And the goods will accumulate on the board as you play throughout the game. And when you visit 
a location, you take all the cubes off the colour that's on that location from there, and then you put it into your own warehouse storeboard. Now, although there are eight colours of cubes for the eight major destinations, there are actually 16 different goods within the game, and what you do with these colour of cubes, you must split them between the two types of goods they can be. So, if I were, for example, to take red cubes, and they could be a type of fruit, or they could be a type of clothing, I would have to give at least one to the fruit and at least one to the clothing if I had two, and then from then I'd be free to choose how I wanted to give them out. Depending upon the different colours, they can be different types of goods. Again, another slight thematic thing there which can be difficult to follow, but you're collecting cubes and you put them in warehouses and they become goods as they go into your warehouse. With the four minor destinations, you don't actually collect cubes from there. But there is a reason for going to those as well, which will become apparent in a second. Now, when you go to a major destination to collect those goods, the other thing you do is you trigger goods to appear on the board in any of the major destinations which are linked to the destination you've chosen to go to. So if I go to France, for example, I might trigger goods to appear in England and in Spain and in Holland. So that's how goods generate and they're going to build up until someone goes and collects them from a particular place. Now, the reason you might be going to any of these destinations, as well as collecting those goods, is to fulfill contracts and contracts are at the real heart of this game players can have up to five contracts once they get past the first stage of their turn and those contracts will show a location and what they want delivered there it may be a specific collection of different goods it may be they want let's say four different types of weapons it will just show you something there and each contract comes with a level which breaks from between 2 and 14. Everyone starts with four contracts, there was 2, 3, 4, and 5. Okay? So you have these contracts in front of you, they show you your destination, they show you what cubes you need to take to there. So on your turn, you're going to be trying to collect those cubes, and then when you go to the destination to fulfill the contract, you don't get any money or anything like that. You get the ability to take the contract to the next level up off the contract you just fulfilled. So if I fulfill my level 4 contract, I can take the top level 5 contract to be face up on a pile. If I fulfill my level 8 contract, I can take a level 9 contract from the top of that pile. And you can see which contract is next, you can see which contract you're going to get. You then add that to your tableau in front of you. If you have more than 5 at the start of your turn, you're going to have to sell one of those contracts. And you choose which one to sell, and that gives you money. Now, I haven't mentioned money yet, although this is clearly a representation of being merchants. Actually, money is a little bit secondary, because the level of contracts you hold at the end of the game will be... A large part of your scoring so whatever the levels are of the five contracts you keep in front of you plus possibly one or two more that you've collected on your last turn they will be your points so if I've got five level eight contracts I'll score 40 points in those contracts and the only way to get contracts is by fulfilling lower level contracts I'm gonna say contracts a few more times during this paragraph however you get the idea that you're trying to move around fulfill them upgrade them and get better and better ones in order to score at the end of the game now if you have more than five contracts or you choose to, you can sell them at the beginning of your turn and you can collect money. And what's the money for? Well, the money is for one of two things. Firstly, you can buy bonus cards. And what bonus cards would be linked to a specific location. And when you choose to make the piece travel to that location, you will get a bonus in certain types of cubes. So you might get extra plums when you go somewhere or extra whatever it might be that the bonus card gives you. The second thing you can buy with the money you make from selling contracts, and again, you might be forced to sell contracts during the game, you probably will be, are buildings. Now, they're called buildings, but basically all they are is end-game scoring bonuses. And they're going to score you bonuses for having certain goods in your warehouses, for having filled warehouses in certain patterns, because they're all laid out in a certain grid, and certain 
goods go in certain areas. It might be for having the most bonus cards. It might be for all sorts of different reasons. But there's always a tablet of four buildings available. And with that money, you can buy them. And that is going to be the other main part of scoring at the end game. So the level of the contracts you've managed to get during the game. And also any buildings which give you bonus points at the end of the game. When someone takes a level 14 contract, that's the end of the game. Everyone gets one more go and then you add up your points from your buildings and the contracts in front of you. Sean, that is not the easiest game in the world to give a thematic explanation for. You get the idea that each turn you're moving to a destination, you're collecting cubes that are there and you may be fulfilling contracts with the cubes that you've already collected in your warehouse. Lead on. Well, we shall come back to the theme in a moment, though. Shall we really? We shall. We shall. Let's start about the looks of the game, because this is where I usually start on this podcast. The game immediately looks boring, Ronan. It has an uninspiring box, and to be honest, it doesn't really get much better when you open it up. There's just a sea of beige and dull orange. Now, what I will say that I like about it is the components. I like the little boxes to hold the little cubes because it's nice to have a place to keep cubes neat and tidy rather than the fantasy flight method of just piling stacks of cubes and tokens all around the board. That I do like. However, the little boxes aren't conducive to those of us with big shovel hands, but I do like them, Ronan. What do you think of the look of the game? The box is awful. Yep. The board is awful. Yep. The player boards are awful. <laughs> the cards are pretty awful. Yeah. The cubes are great. There's eight yeah, different they're... colour cubes and they look lovely. The fact that the boxes sit in little niches on the board is is nice, but I think definitely the design decisions in how the game looks has put people off from trying it and has probably put people off when playing it because people don't want to sit there for two hours trying to plan ahead and make decisions while you're looking at something which it, it doesn't really help and the layout <laughs> of your warehouses doesn't really help and nothing really helps you play the game and all the components blend together contract cards don't look that different to bonus cards or building cards and there's a very sort of old fashioned graphic style to it and Sean it doesn't look good no it does look pretty poor now you mentioned People just don't enjoy it and it doesn't lend itself. I think the theme fits right in there. I think the theme is... What? What's going on? Well, I don't know that the theme is what. Like, you could make a game on that theme. A bit of war profiteering. Yeah, yeah, but the the mechanics of this game and what you're doing... Yeah. And this theme, like, not even tacked on, just thrown from a distance to see if it lands anywhere close. (laughs) Let's face it. It did, and that is one of my issues with this. Is there are uh, I don't want to give too much away. There are interesting aspects of this game for me, right? But the theme would need to tie everything together for me, and it just doesn't. It's just it doesn't make sense. It's not interesting enough to breathe interest into what is, and we'll probably discuss, is a very serious head scratchy euro pick up and deliver and without the theme you're kind of just left with an abstract complex brain burner of a puzzle yeah you are left <laughs> but that's not necessarily a bad thing in a no system. it's not no it's not the theme no. and the mechanism i mean look the fact that there's only one piece and you're moving that one piece 
and then it's, it sort of magically resets, although it doesn't on the board, in effect it does. Complete disconnect for people. You've just heard me try and struggle through the rules, because I always try and like, tie some kind of story into them. Same when I explain this game. People look at me like I'm a lunatic. Now, they start playing it, and they go, oh yeah, okay, I get it. It all actually mechanically makes sense and ties together. And during the play, a pattern emerges. And even first-time players can see that pattern and can start making strategic decisions to get to where they need to go. But to roll it all back to where we were discussing, it is so difficult to get people in on this because they say, well, well, who am I? Yeah, you're kind of yeah, yeah. You're a you're Hamburg maybe. You're kind of like a city of Hamburg. You're you're like the the mayor of no no not for uh, you're you're a donkey from Hamburg. I don't know who you are. And then the fact that when you go somewhere, it produces goods around it. I mean, I always say to people that you're by going there, you're generating trade, which makes other trade available. But it's everyone knows that's paper thin nonsense. Why? Why is any of this happening? I don't know. That central board is just there to provide the kickstart to what you're actually really doing is managing your tableau of contracts. It's a bit more than that, but I, I mean, I can only agree with you so much. You're right. I don't get it. I don't know. I'm sure someone could have taken this kind of a game and put a theme on it and tweaked the mechanism to make it make some sort of sense. Well, you just you just mentioned uh, people making strategic decisions. Is there really a lot of strategy in this game? I felt that it was more tactical than strategic because you can't really plan too far ahead. You're constantly reacting to what the other players are doing and trying to stop people getting to what they need to do and people are doing the same to you. So you've got maybe an overall strategy where you want to get to the level 14 or or what have you, but maybe collect lesser numbers. But I really felt that this was more tactical. I felt that playing it, I was always sort of had my tactical brain on rather than the strategic brain. You know, I'm, I'm going to try and say this without giving you a nice cold burn. Is that all right? <laughs> it's really easy to get sucked in playing tactically because you're tempted to go and grab the cubes that you need right now for this contract and then immediately hand that contract in and just grab whatever random next contract it upgrades to. And you know, if that doesn't suit, I'll just burn it for some money and I'll just do the same thing. So I'll trigger my level 5 contract. So I just picked up 8 green cubes. And that six doesn't suit me, so I'll burn it. So I'll trigger my level five again, and that six doesn't suit me, so I'll burn it. And I'll trigger my level... And you can do that. I don't think it's very good play, though. I think it's because you're making one move, you're doing one thing, people tend to not try and look too far ahead. What I found from it is, if you can get yourself in a position where you can fulfill more than one of your contracts at once, the strategy in it then comes from creating combos with your bonus cards, creating combos with your contracts, and then being able to leap onto the tactical sort of opportunities that come up for you by looking at the contracts that are coming up and saying, if I upgrade, I can upgrade my 4, my 6, or my 8. My 4 will give me that contract, that's no good to me. My 6 will give me that contract, which actually that is good for me. And my 8 will give me, well, give me the most points. It'll give me, like, an extra point for my 9. And having a 9 is good, just constantly upgrading is good because it gives me access to level 10 contracts. But that 9 is useless, you know. I need five different foodstuffs, and I've got no food stuff in my warehouses. Don't do the 8 now, even though I could. Do the 6, take that 7 that suits me, and then do the 8 when it suits me to do it, and be in that position to do that. Okay, okay. Let me just jump in. Yeah. 
I completely I agree, but I think a good player playing against you will see what you are trying to achieve and the way you are going, and will try to block you off if it, if possible. If it means nothing to them to go and get the goods and block you, get all pick all the goods out of England or France or Germany and get all the plums from England or where all the coal or whatever you. Then I think that's where it becomes a tactical battle. If you're up against players on a reasonably level playing field, I think that's where it becomes a tactical game because people are just trying to stop you. They can see what you're aiming for. They can work out where your optimal move is and they, they're going to try and stop you. And that's why I find it's just really, really brain-burning because it's not just about your game, this. It's about watching what other people are doing. And that's one of the things I really do like about it. It is very, very interactive. They, they've kind of tacked that little bit where you're following people around and you pay time to follow people, which I didn't really understand and I didn't use a lot. I felt that was almost sort of tacked on to give it interaction, but the game is so interactive because of that. You're always watching what people are doing. Everything that somebody else does matters to you because they're either getting ahead of you in the game or they're taking things off you or they're getting the contract that you want. It's just really, that's the aspect I like about the game. Oh, it's definitely possible to screw people over. You know, if I can see that most of your contracts require red cubes in one way or another, and I can see the red cubes are built up, and I go there. We all know it's going to take a few turns for those red cubes to build up again. You're right, and that you are correct. That is one of the good things about the game. We started off negative. The interactivity is great, and you can screw each other over, and it can be funny. Can it be slightly too negative? I think with fewer players, it can get more negative, because you are literally in a face-off in a two-player or even a three-player game. You're facing directly off against each other. You can see everything that everyone's doing, and you know exactly what opportunities you're opening up with each move, and Cash becomes a bit more AP than when you go to four players because with four players, you're not the only one opening up opportunities. So going somewhere and providing AQ here and there, not that big a difference. It's more slightly broad stroke sort of thing. So I think when you have fewer players, it works for two, three or four players, but the game does slightly change. And with two players, it becomes that real cutthroat. If I take these yellows and then I refuse to go somewhere that triggers yellows for the next couple of terms, you're in big trouble with those contracts, mate. I don't know what you're going to do with them. But then there's possibly then of cycling those contracts a bit more, hitting a few buildings and trying to build up from there. I'm not sure that's as efficient as being able to, to chain your moves together. But maybe in the two-player game, that is something that's more relevant than you know a more multiplayer. So... There's also a time aspect to this game where you have to spend time tokens and there's a time track that's going to give you a bit of random as you use up the time. How did you feel the time lent itself to the game? I think that at the beginning, it definitely felt a lot tighter towards the end and the game can finish when the time runs out. There's a certain amount of time tokens laid out, depending upon the number of players. And when the last time taken goes, that also is really in the game, as well as the level 14 contract. But at the beginning, it can be quite tight. And it really, you can take a contract that's in an expensive time location and go, oh, no. Or your bonus cards. It's like, for example, last game I played, I had a couple of new Newfoundland bonus cards. I took them because they chained nicely together. Then I realised it's taking me three time every time I want to go over there. And I just didn't. Literally, I don't have the time to go and do that. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, so I, I think it's more interesting at the beginning than it is towards the end. Towards the end, it just tends to be something for endgame scoring and buildings. There are buildings that give you points for having the most time token stuff like that. So it becomes slightly less relevant as more time really comes into the game. Because you're only 
really ever paying it to each other. Time doesn't leave the economy within the game and it builds up and it builds up and it builds up. So at the beginning, it feels kind of restrictive. It's something to maybe consider a little bit. Is it a mechanism too many in there? I don't know, because also it does affect whether you choose to go places. You know, I might want to go to Spain because there's loads of cubes there. But if I know everyone else has got a contract for Spain, my decision then whether to go there is going to be, well, do I need their time or not? And if I've got plenty of time and I don't want to open it up to them, well, then no, make them go there and take no cubes to fulfill their contracts. Just another little, you know, it adds another little 5% to the thoughts of the game. Yeah, I, I kind of, I didn't actually like it. I didn't actually think it added a little layer to the game that made it that little bit more interesting for me. But yeah, it, it wasn't the be-all and end-all. And certainly, that, as I said before, that follow-the-leader mechanism that just didn't really sit well with me at all i didn't really understand it but that might be saying a lot about myself so i think we provided contrasting views there we don't like some things about the game we do like other things about the game a lot of agreement this is weird second game in a row sean what are your final thoughts on makata right and makata was one of the games i was really excited about i do like Uwe rosenberg i like his games i like the way he sets things up I watched a couple of playthroughs of this before I finally took the plunge and, and bought it into my collection. And I have to say, I was I was a little bit disappointed. I felt the game was a little bit repetitive and didn't feel like I had a massive range of options. I didn't hate the game. I'd happily play it again. But I think we lowered expectations the next time. And I think I might enjoy it more for that. The game just it just felt a little bit flat for me. There were some very interesting aspects to the game and I could definitely see the appeal but it didn't provide enough or come together well enough to keep it entertaining for me and that, I'm going back to the theme bit I like to know why I'm doing things in games it takes a very very special game or abstract game for me to just say okay you know what that game is good enough I don't need to know why, who I am or why I'm doing things this, this isn't that good it's not good enough to do that for me I would have liked a better theme. I'd like to have understood why I was doing things, but definitely some interest. This, for me, is the opposite of Istanbul. This is some really interesting mechanisms that don't quite come together into a cohesive game. So, I think there is plenty to like in the game once you get past the thematic complete dryness and the pretty much horrific looks of it. I was amazed that Sean wanted this. I was amazed that he wanted it after watching run-throughs and he knew what it looked like and he could see the theme was a bit nonsensical. If I was going to choose a game that Sean wouldn't like, it would have been this. Given that he actually doesn't mind it, and I think I could talk him into playing it again, I think that's quite a big hit for Uwe Rosenberg. I think that's a little feather in his cap. I'm not in love with it, but I think it's different. It's mechanically different to lots of other games. It rewards repeated plays so that you can learn what buildings are in play, what contracts come up. It rewards plays with different gaming groups as well because I found that different gaming groups contrast in the way that they interact within the framework of this game. It hasn't got obvious appeal to it. It is dry. But I think, try and look past that. If any of what we said appeals to you at all and give it a go See if someone else has got a copy. Give it a play because there's a kind of little catch there. It's one of those games that I don't love, but I can't forget. 
and I do want to carry on playing. And every now and then I think, oh, I fancy a game of Makita. And it comes out, and I remember exactly why I keep it in my collection and why I want to play it sometimes, and yet also why it doesn't hit the table regularly. Because it's not a complete success, but it's a good game, and it's one that I'm going to keep holding. So there you go, Makita. So, moving on to Tiny Epic Kingdoms, which came out in 2014, published by Gamelin Games, designed by Scott Alms. Scott has done Martian Dice, Kings of Air and Steam, and the upcoming Harbour from Tasty Minstrel Games. The player number of this is 2 to 5, and it plays in 20 to 30 minutes, and it's a fantasy 4X minigame with area control. Variable player powers and a little bit of bluffing. To recap what 4X means, it means explore, expand, exploit and exterminate. So this game is one of the slew of mini micro games, whatever you want to call them, that came out in 2014. And this was one of the more popular ones. It came through Kickstarter and made a load of money on there. So in Tiny Epic Kingdoms, players will receive a race and each of these races have unique powers. You have a home map and seven meeples in your chosen colour. The map depicts different areas that will allow players to harvest three types of resource. You have the plains for food, the forest for mana, and the mountains for ore. Water and crags are impassable, and some tiles have capital cities which are worth more points at the end than other areas. And there are also runes that offer the chance to harvest any resource, but are harder to claim victory points from. So when they go, a player will choose an action, and the other players will either follow them and also do that action, or they'll decide to not follow and collect resources from each area that they have a meeple in. The actions are patrol, where you're just going to move to an adjacent area, quest, move to another player's map tile, build, spend ore to move up on the castle track, which you're basically building a castle, research to spend mana to move up your personal mana track for each race, each level that you go up on this track gives you a unique bonus power to use. You can expand, which you spend food equal to the meeples you have in play, plus one to add another meeple. And you can trade. You can trade one type of good for the same number of another type of good. Should you ever move into a territory that contains another player, you must decide whether to go to war. Players' war power is calculated by their ore and their mana, with mana equaling two battle points and ore equaling one. Players will secretly decide how much to commit by using a dice hidden from their opponents, and they will reveal their choice simultaneously with the winner getting to stay in the territory and the loser having to remove their meeple. There is a choice to decide to spend zero, which is depicted on the dice by a little white flag to say peace, and this is a peace pact that is declared and the players can both remain in the area and both claim the resources. However, if any later wars happen between those two same players, the outcome will affect all territories that they share, with the loser having to remove their meeples from every one of those areas. The end of the game is triggered by someone reaching the top level on either the castle track or the research track, or by a player having all seven meeples out in play. At the end of the game, points are scored from the castle track, the research track and from the areas you control and as i said it's a it's a micro game so there's not much more to it ronan we had a, a little session where we played a few games of this how did you find it 
Well, I'm going to say it's not a micro game. And why do you say that? <laughs> because it's not quick enough. It's got too much going on. It has too many components. It's not really a micro game. It is an attempt to shrink a very big game into a smaller game. I don't think they quite got all the way down to micro. What's been your average play then? I've played it with two and three players so far. Two players, I would say, is about 25 minutes, and three players, uh, half an hour to 40 minutes. 40 minutes isn't much. And it goes up no. to five players. And I reckon with five players, you're getting up, certainly when you start off, towards an hour. Yeah, yeah, I can see that, yeah. So, they've attempted to take a big game and make it smaller. Fine. Uh, the shared action thing, I'll go with first. So there are six actions in the game, and you're going to do five of them. If I play games slightly different, but you're going to do five of them, and people are going to take turns choosing them, as Sean said. Now, the fact that you either share the action or you take resources means that you are constantly doing something, yes. But it also means the game is constantly moving very, very quickly. And there doesn't seem to be much differentiation between doing the action and not doing the action. There doesn't seem to be enough of an advantage in creating a chance for yourself to do an action. So I might attempt to manipulate a situation in which, or see a situation in which I have more magic than the other guys, so I might take the research action when they can't take it. But then they're just going to grab a whole load of resources anyway. So it's almost like the game forces you to be at a fairly similar level. You know, you can't... Does it reward good play enough in things like that? Does it open up enough? Or is it just... Every turn, someone's doing something, someone's doing something, someone's doing something. I think there is merit in what you're saying. I don't think it is, is black and white, as you're saying. I think there are definite strategies and tactics you can employ. I think, yeah, I think what part of the game is looking to see what other people have got gathered and see where you can sort of get the most out of your turn. The other players have always got that option to take resources. But I like that. I like the fact that... The other players, if they can't do something on the track, if they can't do what you're doing in terms of the turn, they can just collect resources and, and save it for another turn. But then so I'm there is a decision. And they're gathering. So it's like it's a huge resource swing all of a sudden. And yeah, when, when I'm actually trying to do something constructive within the game. But I think if you're spending in the right areas, you're, you're getting ahead of them. And it's picking and choosing when you're spending and when you're gathering. If you're going to be a warmonger, then you're going to want to get that mana and that ore, especially the mana, because it's worth two war points to you. And there's, there's ways of manipulating it. Each race plays thematically, although I will admit some races work. Some, as we found out, Ronan, especially some of the Kickstarter extra yeah, versions. Yeah, let's not do that to ourselves. Alright? They just, some of them just do not work at all. They just, they make thematic sense, yeah, fair enough, but they just don't make any sense in the game at all. They put you at a complete disadvantage. You don't know what's happening. I'm looking at you, shapeshifters. <laughs> wow, they're the opposite of strategy, aren't they? Okay. But, but you're saying there that if you're a warmonger, you don't mind, you're just going to grab resources anyway. And that really kind of irked me as well. So, if I take an action and I spend my resources to do it, the other guys are grabbing resources. Not only are they grabbing resources, which means they may well then be able to take advantage of the situation in terms of actions, but then I'm just going to grab resources anyway and get back ahead, so it becomes very tit for tat. But it also means then they are more powerful than me militarily. So they're getting an advantage to attack me, because I've attempted to do an action, which I attempted to manipulate the game towards me being able to do better than them. So, in fact, by doing something, I'm opening myself up to be attacked. Not necessarily. It depends if you've gone to up in your personal mana track. 
So you might have a, a nice little bonus that protects you or does things with your remaining resources. They do play thematically, and I think there are choices. But I, I'm defending the game when I actually I kind of agree with you. I'm probably not as adamant as you are in terms of it, it's just really annoying and there's there's no real strategy to it. But I, I do see what you're saying. There is a lot of random in this. The mechanics kind of keep you together. There's no runaway winners in this game. Because you're always doing one or the other, as Ronan quite correctly said. I do think there are choices to be made, and there's very subtle choices to be made. They're not the most obvious things going on. Yes. I think that exactly what you're going on there, there are small decisions which are made, and quite possibly made quite early in the game, which will ultimately decide who's going to win. More so, I think, with fewer players, but I think that a lot of the variety comes from the races, right? So... Generally, every time you play, you're going to have different race combinations and you're going to look at how those races combo together. What I found in doing that is, while you're still trying to work out what race does what and where we should go and how this race actually works, someone has made a couple of decisions earlier on and gone a certain direction and now they've got ahead. Because of the way that action system works, where everyone does the same action or collects resources and the same action, the same action, and five out of six actions are going to happen, and then five out of six, and then five out of six. There's very little variety in what you can do. Everything is small, and then small decisions end up being game winners further down the line, before you even really know how the game's going to develop. If someone decides early to start building up their tower, and then it actually it turns out that what they can do with their race and how the game goes for them means that they can stay ahead on their tower all the time, well, they're going to win. Or sometimes it just works out that being one of the warlike races is very powerful and you can just wipe the floor with someone and in fact one of my big problems with this game is if someone gets hammered early they get taken out of lots of areas they then can't collect resources so they're constantly behind on the resource collected which means they're constantly militarily weaker than everyone else so they can never get back into the game that aspect i completely agree with you and i and i touched on it when i said that some of the races just don't work some of the races just do not stack up against the others it's just as simple as that the you've got a heavy warlike race against again i'm going to pick on the shapeshifters who you just can't plan you cannot plan. Maybe you'll get lucky and get a warlike bonus. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll get something that gives you extra food. That's not going to help you against something like the orcs who are just going to rampage through and kill all your people. Sure, so, we need a shaking head sound effect. <laughs> so, therefore, I think some of these Kickstarter additionals, maybe because they were Kickstarter additionals, they weren't the most thought out. They're not in the base game. Maybe they're not in the base game for a reason. And I think it's a case of you do have to be careful what races you, you stack up against each other. I'm not so sure that it's always early decisions. I've played games when late decisions have made all the difference or something has chained together right at the last minute to give someone just, just that edge to get ahead in the game. But I think, yeah, you're right. There's a point in the game where a tiny little decision will eke someone ahead in the race. Yeah, again, because that whole thing of keeping everyone together. Now, one of the big selling points in this is the huge variety within the game. So every game you play is going to be different. And there are two sort of ways that the variety has worked. First one is the variety in maps. Sean, do they make any difference? They do. The, the two sides of the maps do actually make a difference in what you do because there's one side that has a completely different area and that's going to add a slight sort of tactical decision whether to gather resources or try and get that as points 
Because what you do is, in the ruins areas, if you lie your meeple down, he won't score you any points, but you can gather any type of resource you want. So they're quite valuable, they're going to be fought over, but if you don't time it properly, and you have to spend an action to stand these meeples up, if, if somebody else gets in the action before you need it, then you're going to lose out on a valuable victory point. And there's not a lot of difference in the in the victory points at the end of the game so that does change it a little bit the capital cities they change it just ever so slightly in, in that they're worth more points it's not groundbreaking it's not going to completely change the game but they again little subtle differences yeah i'm not convinced but <laughs> the second thing is the races the races are supposed to add variety as well so i'm going to jump in quick for you comment on it the only variety they add is learning to play that particular race so each race is different to each other okay it's a form of variety but what you do with the race is prescriptive there is clearly a best strategy you look at this race you go oh look this race is set up to do that this is now what i'm going to attempt to do for the rest of the game it may not be obvious on first play but it will be after a game and you go, oh, do you know what? What I should have done is this, that, and this, and that. And you know next time I play this race, I'm going to do that. And then that's it. That is not true variety. That's not a chance to explore and make your own decisions. That's just, there are lots of prescriptive ways of playing this game in the box. Once you play all those prescriptive ways, well, it's all right. We'll introduce an expansion with more prescriptive ways to play the game. Sean, the races and variety. I concur. You are completely right. Everything you've said is completely correct. And no, not at all. It's when you when you speak truth, you speak truth. The races, although being very thematic and different from each other, they don't really bring a lot of variety in terms of what you can do with that race. As you said quite correctly, Ronan, once once you understand that race, and I don't think it'll take long. I think maybe after your first go, you think, oh, I should have gone that way because that that worked. Like the orcs, it was instantly obvious to me that they were a warlike race. Get as much war power in, rampage across the map. That's where the power is. Get up the, their mana track because it just gives you war bonus after war bonus and it all, all comes together. It wasn't a hard race to play and there's nothing for me to learn after that. I know exactly how to play the orcs. I'll play them exactly the same way. So yeah, the variety is completely lost because you're going to play it the way the designers tell you to play it. Okay. I'll tell you what this game does, Sean. This game makes me think too much for not enough reward. And by think, I just mean I have to follow lots of stuff that's going on that I'm not really deciding very much on how much of it happens. It's too tight. It's too prescriptive. It's not a micro game. The only thing micro about the game is the decision space within it because I really am being told how to play this game every time I play it. I'm being completely limited on my actions. It is just not fun. I don't know why you've bothered to try and make this into a smaller game. Because it has none of the advantages of a smaller game. It has none of the appeal of a smaller game. A smaller game is something which can play quickly. It has probably a limited amount amount that you put in. And a lot that you get more out. This has got a lot that you've got to put in. Of keeping track of everything. And very little coming back. Because... I'm just chucking in all this stuff to do to the game, and the game is going to do whatever the hell it wants to do anyway. It is, for once, lacking in a bit of random. It is so prescriptive that things are just going to happen to you, there's little you can do, you can get behind early, and there is no way of catching up. This is not a good game. Not because it's small, not because it's short, but because it just is not fun in any way. Okay, well, I'm not 
going to go as harsh as that on it. But when I first heard about this game and read about this game and backed it on Kickstarter for my sins, I, I was very excited because it was billed. People were saying, oh, it does pack a lot of punch for its size. And although Ron is correct in, in what he says, it, it, it is a, a slightly longer game. It's not a micro game as such. It can be played in your lunch break and it is it takes up a very small amount of space. So... It can be carried around and played almost anywhere. It's not a micro game, but it does pack a little bit of punch. There are a few decisions to make for what the box actually offers you. But since I've played it a few times now, from that first time where I thought, actually, yeah, it does pack a lot of punch. I've realised, no, it doesn't, actually. It's exactly what Ronan said. It's very prescriptive and you don't have a lot of choice in the actual races. I think it looks it looks really nice, especially the Kickstarter Deluxe components are beautiful, looks awesome. I think the the races do look thematic, do work thematically, although they might not give you the variety. So it's it's an okay game. I like the the war aspect and the treaty aspect of it. I think that's a little bit of fun, a little bit of theatre with the actual holding of the dice and revealing what you've done. So a little bit of fun there. But the game that changed my mind about this is 8 Minute Empire, and more specifically 8 Minute Empire Legends. After playing that game, I realised what this game possibly should have been. Now, we'll talk about 8-Minute Empire Legends once we've had a good few games of it and Ronan's managed the game. But I think that's it's everything that this game should have. It's definite decisions to be made. There's things to chain together. They're watching what the other person's doing and you can do something about it. And that completely changed my mind about this game. This game went from a decent game and a game that I was quite excited about to a game that i'll probably trade because it's just not going to hold the interest long enough it was a nice try for me i don't hate it i don't think it's a bad game like ronan does but i certainly don't think it's a great game and probably not a good game now that's tiny epic kingdoms Okay, so our fourth and final game we're going to discuss this time around is Quartermaster General. Now, Quartermaster General was designed by Ian Brody. He's also designed Destination Neptune and Santa's Bag, which has been recently featured on the Dice Tower Network. It's published by Griggling Games, which are Ian Brody's publishing house. They've done the same games as above. And it was released in 2014. It plays two to six players and it has an advertised playtime of about 90 minutes, which is about right. The game is about players in two teams controlling six major powers in World War II. And for each of those powers, there is a unique deck of cards. And players are going to be simply playing those cards to put pieces out onto the board, create supply lines, which is what the Quartermaster General bit is all about, and attempt to control areas of the board to score points. So, when playing, no matter what the player count is, you split into two teams, and one is going to be Axis and one's going to be Allies, and there are suggested player makeups, if you like, in the rulebook to tell you. So, if you've only got four players, someone should control these two powers, someone should control these two powers, because certain powers work together. For example, Germany and Italy pair together well. Now, each of the power starts with one army piece on their start country on the board and there are only two different types of pieces for the armies there are just land armies 
and there are C units. That's all there is. There's nothing complicated, loads of units or anything like that, and they're simply represented by wooden pieces. There's no stats, there's no chits, there's no dice rolling. Combat is completely prescriptive, and we'll get to that. So, on a turn, each of the powers is going to play one card. That's going to be from a hand of seven, which comes from their own unique deck. They are then going to check that all the units they have on the board are supplied, which means they can create a supply chain of their own units to a supply space. Certain spaces on the board are supply spaces. They allow you to have and keep units in play. They also allow you to score points at the end of your turn. The next thing you do is going to score those VPs each of the supply spaces on the board which you control and there are about maybe possibly up to a dozen within the game they're going to score you two points if you control it by yourself or one if you share them with one of your allies you then can discard cards in your hand and then draw back up to seven each of the powers has got a different size deck somewhere in the 30s or 40s of cards there are a maximum of 20 turns in the game so you're only ever going to really play 20 cards however you can't throw away too many because players can attack each other's hands and each other's decks and make you discard cards and when you run out of cards not only do you no longer have any actions you also start losing points for your side so what are on those cards what can you do with them well very quickly there are cards which allow you to either build armies or build navies they allow you to put either land units or sea units onto the board the board is split into lots of different areas not necessarily just countries and you put them adjacent somewhere where you already have units to take control units of the same teams can share space with each other but units of different teams cannot under any circumstances so if you wish to move into an area which is controlled by the other team you must first eliminate their pieces from the board and the next turn you're going to look to put your pieces into play which brings me on to the next thing how do you eliminate those pieces from the board where well, it's very simple there are land battle cards and sea battle cards if you play a land battle card you may eliminate a land piece which is adjacent to one of your pieces simple as that if you play a sea battle card you may eliminate a sea piece which is adjacent to one of your pieces as simple as that so it is not about the combat in as much as it is about the strategy, the overall view and the maintaining the supply lines in this game. The other four types of cards you can play are events, which are simple one-off events which happen as you play the card and then they're done. There are status cards. Now these allow you to shape how you're going to go throughout the game. They're cards which come into play and stay in play, face up in front of you and in some way affect what you or your allies can do for the rest of the game. There are response cards. Now they come into play face down. They're not like status cards. And they do not come into effect until the triggering action happens on them. So it may be that you're attacked in a certain area or you build an army in a certain area, wherever it may be for that particular response card. Then when the triggering action happens, you may choose, even if it's not your turn, to bring that response card into place. It's almost like you're laying secret plans or traps for people who wish to attack you. And the last type of card is an economic warfare card. I did say that you can attack each other's decks. Economic warfare cards forces your opponents to discard cards at the top of their deck, which limits their options, may also force them to run their deck out, which, like I said, mean they'll have no actions, they'll have no cards to play. It also means they'll start losing points for their team. There are two ways to win the game. And there are competition rules which you should play with, really, but it mostly there's two ways to win the game. It's whichever team has the most points at the end of 20 turns, or... If you manage to have armies in two of the opposition's three capitals, that is an immediate win. The competition rules are if you get a certain number of points ahead from the other team, you win the game. Yeah, it can stop there being too much of a one-sided game, but you can actually see comebacks as well. So they're kind of a mixed blessing. I think with fairly level experience and ability teams, maybe that's the way to go. Sean, 
that is pretty much everything about how you play the game. It's been a quick rules explanation. It is a very simple game, especially given that it simulates World War II. It has a massive overview of the whole world. You can play as all six different powers in it. It sounds like it might be very complicated, but it isn't. But is there anything to it? Yes, it was a quick explanation, Ronan. I think we might have to call the Guinness World of Records in, but I think it might have been your quickest yet. Thank you. I'm going to take that as a congratulations. Well done. Yeah, a little pat on the back for you. Well done. Quartermaster General. It is another game where... I'm not going to say my opinion has changed on, but my opinion is changing. First game of this, I thought it was incredibly simple to play. Real pure strategy, massively thematic, and the first thing that struck me, and it says it in the rule book, and you said it in your rules explanation, is how thematically each one of the factions plays, or each one of the nations plays out. For instance, the two that spring to mind, Russia, just throw land force after land force at everything they've got, got loads of land troops and that's a it's just almost a bludgeon effect which they did in the war great britain has just influence all over the globe obviously a strong navy and influence all over the globe so they can they can come at you from all angles and they've got little pockets of resistance all over all around so again really thematic and that was the first thing that struck me ronan yeah it is fantastic Every single deck is unique, apart from those sort of generic build units and attack cards. All the events are unique to a particular deck. All the statuses, all the responses, all the economic warfare cards. So, generally get a feel. It's exactly like you just said. Each of the uh, different powers plays completely differently. The US has got great strategic breadth. They can go across towards Japan. They can come help help out in Europe. They can get really, really powerful by the end of the game. Germany are the only uh, country who can attack and move in in the same turn using their Blitzkrieg cards. So, absolutely, Sean, I was really surprised how well the different flavours of the different powers is captured within a simple rule set. And the choices in the game, Roland, on the face of it, you're playing a card. That's all you're doing. You are playing a card on your turn. Maybe it's face down for a later turn, but you're playing a card. That sounds really, really simple, but that's just the surface the more you think about what you're playing the more you think about where you're going what's your next turn what's your turn after that have what's your strategy building up to be you really tie yourself in knots to play that one card and it should be really simple yeah you're not playing a card in isolation are you you're playing a card in terms of what's happening on the board what's gone on beforehand what else is in your hand can you make it work do you need to discard and get some more cards to make these work what your overall strategy is, because within those powers, there are different ways they can go. Germany can go east or west. That might not seem like such a big choice, but really it is. And that can be influenced by where Russia go, where the US look like they're going, what Italy are doing to help you out. Or Italy can actually open up point scoring opportunities in Africa and the Middle East for Germany and Italy, or in the Ukraine, and then Germany has to feed off what they do. Whether they can eliminate UK, you said the UK can have pockets of resistance they can build up from australia or india or canada or can they maintain their foothold within the uk itself and how other players are playing and what's happening on the board affects what cards to play at what time and also what chain of cards you're going to do but what is fantastic about that with all those decisions to be made is that it's so quick because you're just playing a card and you know what no matter how much you have to think about it At the end of the day, you're just playing one card and doing exactly what it says on the card. And none of the cards have got huge, complicated things to do. They're all really simple. They all say, 
just do this one thing, just do this one thing. And you don't need explanations as to what they all mean. And you go, okay, that means I had a supply space there. Okay, that means that that's now worth a point to me. Okay, cool. It's all there. The thinking doesn't come from trying to work out the system. The thinking comes from what to do with the flexibility you have within your deck. And also, like in games like uh, Pathfinder we discussed before, it's not just about spending that card, because that card is also your lifeblood. You're, if you are firing through your deck really quickly, you're, you're basically making yourself weaker and you're making sort of the end of your game hasten. So you've got to be really sparing with your cards. You can't just discard things to get better cards into your hand willy-nilly because you're going to run out of cards and you're going to be out of the game and you're going to start losing points for, for your side of the war. So again, that just adds another level of thought behind the playing each card. Yeah, and a lot of the economic warfare cards that we played rely upon other the other team's troops being close to your capital. So there's a decision there of, oh, they've just moved that ship in. I now know that's two spaces away from, let's say, Germany, for example. So now there's a possibility they can send bombers over. And it's that strategic level of thinking as well of, of you know, that sort of a reaction again. In terms of this, though, Sean, in terms of all that thinking you have to do, and in terms of actually how quickly it plays, though, because you're only playing one card in your turn, how many games are there where six players is the maximum and six players is actually the quickest player count to play it with. The reason being for this is that everyone can think about their own power. Once you have to start thinking about a couple of powers, then it happens that you generally can't quite keep up with how quickly the turns go. But if you can think about only your own power, yeah, you have to wait sometimes. You might have to go, give me two secs. I'm just going to think about my next two or three moves and try and plan something. But it flows better than people having to run more than one power at once. Absolutely right. You beat me to it. But it's brilliant that he plays quicker with six players because, as you said, there's no game out there that plays quicker with more players. But for me, I actually find it a little bit more frustrating to play with more players because a two-player game or even a four-player game, you're always in the game. Your turn is going to come around pretty quickly. But in a six-player game or a five-player game where you're just having one faction, it's really frustrating. Although you're still in as part of the Axis or the Allies and you can maybe talk and advise, it's really frustrating as, say, as Russia, as watch everyone decimate your troops and you've got to wait for five other people to take their goes before you can do anything about what they're doing to you. You might not have a have a troop left by the time you get there. And that's another thing. It's very difficult to start off once you're wiped off that board. And it's very frustrating in a five-player game if that happens to you because the other players just happen to get the right sequence of cards. I'm raising my eyebrow here. <laughs> you, you never have to wait more than three or four minutes for your turn. Even with six players. Oh, we played a game with four players where I had to wait a whole lot more than three or four minutes. Maybe on occasion. <laughs> on average. All right, maybe not never, but on average, three or four minutes max. I don't know. Or maybe, maybe it just seems longer. Maybe because I'm so invested in it. Because which you're is getting frustrated thing. and you wanted to do stuff. and You're too used to playing two-player games. That's all it is. You're not a good team player. We're going to have to break you off that, I think. <laughs> um... It's, you couldn't get less downtime with six players. You just couldn't. It's so quick. And exactly what we were saying before is what ha what is happening affects you and affects your decisions. And you have to work with the rest of your team. 
I love a team game. This works as a team game. You need I'm not make... saying there's downtime, by the way. Let me just. I'm not saying it's downtime. I'm saying it's frustration. Okay. It's not downtime. I'm not bored. I'm not bored waiting for the, my turn to come around. I'm just frustrated because people are messing with me and I can't do anything about it until five other people have their go. That's what I'm saying. I, I see that as a positive, though, if you're that invested in your country. Yeah. You know, when you start playing the game that you actually... Depends how frustrated I get. Go. In terms of getting wiped out, though, it is not a very warlike war game. But if you play rubbish and you get wiped out, meh. Fair enough. No, I, I'm not... <laughs> Not that I got wiped out. I almost got wiped out a couple of times. But then you are able to come back, weren't you? And there is a bit of a to and fro there. You know, there's definitely times where, for example, as the UK, you can get taken to the brink and just kind of keep that foothold. And maybe then America will come and help you out and suddenly, boom, you're back in Europe. Or as Russia, you can get squeezed right down to just the Moscow area. And then suddenly maybe Italy, because Italy are probably the weakest power in it. They run out of a bit of steam and they're, oh, there's a little bit of loosening. And you can come back again at them. And I really like that. The fact that, you know, and it's not over till the fat lady sings. Or as Japan, you, you might get knocked out from Japan by America. But you know what? You can reset again. You can base yourself on China and come back again. You won't be scoring points until you get Japan back. But you can carry <laughs> on playing because you've got the... Uh, so- the supply areas. So, Ryan, we've been almost entirely positive about this game, apart from my little frustration comment. So, one of the things that I was worried about the first time I played played this game, well, the first time we played this, I've got to say, we had one of the best post-game discussions I've ever had of any game ever, where, where both factions sat there, and there was four of us, and we talked about what we did, what we could have done, how we could have done it better, what we did badly. It was fantastic. We spent more time talking about the game than we actually did playing it, which takes some doing. But one of the things that was starting to grip me at then, I just felt that, is it got the longevity to it? As this game, does it? Is it going to play completely different every time? Is there a almost prescriptive, as we talked about Tiny Epic Kingdoms, obviously not as bad, but the rule book... Did you just all- say that? <laughs> Did you I knew just that say that? I knew that would upset you. You and me are going to have to fall pitch. out on air. <laughs> Again, is there, the rule books tells you almost the basics of how you should play each power. So, is, there, is there a massive way to play those different? Do the axes have to play in a certain way, especially because they're surrounded at the beginning? Do Italy pretty much have to either support the axis in as much as they can or go into Africa? Do Russia just have to keep pecking away at the Germans? Do the UK have to do... Does every power have to play in a certain way? Does it change enough from game to game? Every game I've played so far, the different people have played the, the same powers in, in the same ways. Okay. That leads into something which I think is a tiny bit of a negative, but I'm going to then hopefully counter-argue you. You need to learn the deck of your particular power. And when there's six of them in there, and you're going to want to try different combinations out and go, oh, yeah, Japan looked fun last time, I'll be there more. Wow, America really powerful by the end, I want to try them out. So generally you're hopping around and you're trying different countries out, okay. And I think that there are one, two, possibly three major strategies to go for with each of those decks. We go, oh, look, it looks pretty obvious this is what I should be trying to do. My thought is, having thought about the game, played it quite a few times, running through it, is that... There are better ways and more subtle ways and cleverer ways of playing the decks. When you get to know the decks better, you get to see which cards have come out early. And then you know, okay, I know, for example, in Italy, there are only four build army cards in that whole deck. 
You're only, you've only got a chance to put out four armies in the whole game. You better know sharp where you want those armies to go. Because just chucking them at Russia and having Russia put endless cheap troops to kill yours is going to absolutely knack you halfway through the game. Learning what statuses you have as Germany and going, okay, this one will combo well with this one and this one. That's what I'm looking for. This is a particular way I'm going to attempt to go this time around. I think that's where the real subtleties, deeper play, people fainting, you know, Germany going for a North Atlantic route. That's possible, but it's not obvious. So I think people tend to avoid it or, or just not see it. And I think if you were able to get players really experienced, you would get more and more and more out of the game. We, you know, we're not yet up into double figures of plays. We're still really you know, just brushing the surface of the game. And I can see that developing. I can see that the variety comes from the fact that you need to get to know what you can do and then playing the same country 10 times will then allow you to explore different ways you can go. Of course, the negative of that is that then when you first play the game, you kind of go, oh, okay, that was really interesting, but now I feel like I know how to play this one country a bit better. And I've had people do that. We play a game and they go, can we play again? I go, do you want to swap? No, I want to play this country because I have an idea now. And, and do you know what I'm saying is that it, it takes a lot of games to get to know every deck in order to then start getting the most out of the game, which is a negative, but which can become a positive, and which I think will counteract your your idea that actually there's only one or two obvious ways to play. Yeah, maybe obvious ways, but not possible ways. Yeah, I can, I can see that. And as you said, we haven't really played it enough, but it's just a suspicion that's creeping in. Like, for instance, if you know the basics of, of World War Two, you know that Germany spread themselves too thin. So the book pretty much tells you don't spread yourself too thin concentrate on either the uk or the russians and don't go for both because you'll just get pecked apart so with germany is there is there a lot more to do as you said there, there might well be there might be some subtleties in the deck and once you learn it but i'm at the moment i've still got that fear factor that maybe i've seen the best that this can offer and it's not going to offer much more and i oh. hope you're right i oh. hope you're right oh controversial okay <laughs> we haven't mentioned components Roland, the German and Americans look very similar. God, really. that's annoying. Oh, it's really... It's just so very, very, very irritating. There are more than six colours in the world, people. <laughs> that's, that's really... Incredible. I actually think it looks really nice. Apart from that one standout thing. And in anything but brilliant light, you cannot tell the difference. It's really annoying. Well, but I mentioned it's that, annoying yet. Is it annoying? It's Did annoying, you... yeah. It is annoying, it is annoying. Right, you're right. You didn't, I didn't see it at first, but you pointed it out now, so it's definitely annoying. Let's not get past that. That's annoying. Oh. <laughs> it's like because sometimes you're looking at the board and you just think that's you know from a different team, and then you go, "Oh no!" Ah! Or you move it, and, and that's not yours. That's an American one. Ah! You've just no! been hatching, hatching I just the four cards away based on that. Um, the other thing I'll say, and I asked the question earlier about Istanbul. Who does Istanbul appeal to? Who does Quartermaster General appeal to? Is the theme putting off, you know, board gamers, shall we say, and then the actual gameplay putting off war gamers, which is because it's not getting a lot of attention. Now, I know there's been some distribution problems. I know there's plenty of copies in existence that uh, Ian Brody's attempting to get distributed around the place. But in terms of an audience, Sean, where's the audience for this game? Ronan, I would never 
have picked this game up if you hadn't have forced it upon me. I would look, taken one look at it and just thought, that's a war game that I've never heard of. It's going to be boring. My knowledge of war games is like Axis and Allies, Tide of Iron, and Memoir 44, and that's pro- pretty much it, really. And this it game... too complicated for you. They were not far too complicated. <laughs> I had to go back to playing the Matchstick Soldiers. This game it is really, really easy to pick up, and if you could talk new gamers into playing it or people who just have a general interest in in the war itself it's so thematic and so easy to pick up then it's definitely accessible to everyone it is the subject matter and it does it's quite a grave looking picture on the front and that man knows supply lines though he does know supply lines ask him any question about supply lines he's on it (laughs) He has that. He has that knowing look about him. I know supply lines. I don't know a lot about petrol use. I really don't. <laughs> but yeah, it's just one of those. I think it is absolutely an accessible game for everybody. But it's just the case of will people pick it up? I don't think they will. No, and it's you know as one might imagine it's been quite a hard sell at times. And I say to people, and I do realise that I have probably been a little bit bullshy possibly belligerent as has been described previously I've gone, no, no, no not you <laughs> not you I, I won't i won't have it <laughs> i go no no you are playing this no i know i really don't play a war game it's not a war game sit down and play it uh, but i have gotten almost 100 percent positive feedback from it not you know hugely sometimes some are like all oh, right that's interesting but it's not really my type of game a lot of people are like yeah can we play it again I took it to my bunch of friends who most want to play a different game every single time and they requested it a second game straight away. Now, that so rarely happens with them. It happened, I think, only once ever before I can remember with Dragon Valley, which is obscure and a weird game for that to have been the second. But anyway, quite much they requested it again because it's got that, oh, I want to give it another go. And it's quick and it works with six. And it's so simple to explain. And it's just a case of play it and you'll know how to play it Uh, there's a lot good here anyway sean sum up for us well apart from the german and the american components oh that's annoying if i mentioned it's annoying it's really annoying it actually does really look nice It's, it's a lovely game it looks well i love the thematic element of it and as i said before i love the way that all the armies play out thematically and as they did in the war itself there's a lot to love about this game but I'm not quite past my fear that I've seen its best. I just hope that Ronan's right with every fibre of my being, because I own this game. I bought it after the first play with Ronan. I liked it that much. I just want it to have that hidden depth that Ronan seems to think it is. At the moment, I'm on the fence with it. I really like it, as you may have gathered from my general thoughts. I really like that you have to play as a team. I really enjoy team games that work properly. This is one of those. You have to discuss things together. You have to work together. You have to go over after common goals together. I love how quick the turns are. There's no fiddliness in this game whatsoever. It's completely smooth in the way it plays. It feels very different, and it is one of my... I'm going to spoil it now for next episode. This is one of my favourite games of 2014. I really think it deserves to be wider played. If anything about our description of it appeals to you, give it a go. Beg, borrow, steal, find a copy, because I think Quartermaster General is a bit of a hidden gem at the moment. So... That's our thoughts, Quartermaster General. 
there we have it. Episode 39 in the bag, and there are four games that we've looked over and fully dissected. Thank you for listening this time round. Next time for episode 40, we are going to be doing our review of 2014, looking back at the best and the worst, the new to us, the newly released, what we're looking forward to in 2015. And we're going to be joined by a bunch of our friends and contributors. So by all means, join us next time too. Exciting stuff. And as always, you can find us on the Dice Tower Network, along with a large selection of brilliant gaming podcasts. We're also on 2d6.org, along with written audio and visual gaming goodness. You can email us at thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggestions for shows, questions, or just chewing the card we are on twitter at game pit podcast we have a facebook page and please come and join us on our board game geek guild music by the arrow